0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, a documentary about the city's first court devoted to cases involving human trafficking.
1: People mostly think that trafficking requires someone being taken across borders for someone to be labeled a victim of trafficking, when often for the domestic girls, they are possibly being trafficked in their own street corner in Brooklyn.
0: And then a one-man show about growing up biracial in America by comedian Bill Posley.
2: And I was just equally black, equally white, was unapologetic about it, and just would bubble in black and white on all my standardized tests, because I believed that's what I was. You asked me what I was, and I would bubble in both.
0: Criminalizing sex work doesn't stop sex work. Same with criminalizing drug use or abortion. What it does do is create an unsafe and punitive climate for people who are already incredibly vulnerable. That's the reason why in 2004, a special court, the first of its kind, was opened in Queens. On a typical day, the Human Trafficking Intervention Court sees scores of women who have been arrested for selling sex and are victims of trafficking. Their approach to not view defendants as criminals or degenerates, but rather as people in need of support services, is revolutionary. And Stephanie Wong Brial has been documenting its approach for the past three and a half years. Her film, Blowing Up, is in theaters now. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How did you find the story?
1: So um, I learned about this courtroom through an article that I read in the New York Times in 2014. And when I read about the population of women that this court serves and that this court was being led by a Japanese female judge, my interests were immediately piqued. And so my producer and I hopped on the F train and we took the train to Queens and we observed the court in action.
0: There was a a case... Recently, I guess in the last two years that made headlines, the New York Times did a big feature on it about a woman named Song Yang, I believe her name was, yes. um, who committed suicide uh, when she was being arrested again by by undercover police officers. And she had gone through this court, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I feel like
0: that was the first time that a lot of people had heard about this court. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that it does and why women like Song Yang um, are, are channeled into this court?
1: Yes, so this court, as you had mentioned in the opening, is the first of its kind in our nation. And it's trying to change the way that women are prosecuted who've been arrested for prostitution charges. And prostitution charges run the gamut. It can be a lot of the women are being arrested for loitering, for massage parlor raids. And so a woman like Song Yang, who um, the case of Jane Doe article from The New York Times, She was one of the women who was arrested in the massage parlor raids and this courtroom in fact serves two population of women one Domestic black Latina transgender youth and then the other half of the courtroom is mainly undocumented Asian women who are being arrested in these massage parlor raids as Judge Shreda once said it didn't make in the film, but she has said to us over and over again You don't see white highly paid escort workers ever coming into this courtroom. It's always women of color who are, you know, more vulnerable to police raids.
0: Judge Sarita also says in the film that it can be hard to determine whether or not someone is being trafficked. Um, And that trafficking isn't as white and black as somebody saying, he's telling me I better have sex with this John or he's going to kill me. Talk to me a little bit about some of the nuances that you saw while you were filming in this court.
1: Yeah, um, I learned so much while making this film about the sex worker spectrum and how vast and different it is across races, backgrounds, ethnicities. And I love that moment in the film when Judge Sreda talks about coercion and that there are different forms of coercion that we don't understand. And then also... People mostly think that trafficking requires someone being taken across borders for someone to be labeled a victim of trafficking, when often for the domestic girls, they are possibly being trafficked in their own street corner in Brooklyn.
0: You brought such nuance to it. And, you know, one of the things that Judge Charita says is, you know, there may be a case where a woman is told you can't stop. Maybe you got into this quote unquote somewhat willingly, you know, because you heard that you were making money, but you can't stop because otherwise we're going to tell everyone in your village back in China what you're doing. And that, that clearly is a case of coercion, but that other courts may not recognize it as such. And so her court has this really amazing 360 view of it. And tell me a little bit about how cases are dealt with in her court as opposed to in a normal criminal court. So
1: Judge Sarita's courtroom, um, it's it's a problem-solving courtroom. It has antecedents from the drug treatment courtroom where instead of just convicting someone for this charge, they're offering them access to programs, culturally appropriate programs, where they are doing either counseling sessions, and those counseling sessions are like not typical counseling sessions either, what you would expect, so that these women and girls can decide through this work with other people whether or not they're in the life, how they feel about that, and whether or not they want to choose to get out of the life, that they can help them however they can with resources to do that. Once the woman finishes the courses, then her case is dismissed and sealed so that in the future, if she ever does choose to go out of the life and try to get another job, this conviction will not show up on her record, harming her opportunities for the future. So a typical criminal court that's not having this kind of courtroom in its um, building, they are just charging these women with felonies or convictions, and so that is hindering them from moving forward with their lives if they do choose to do anything else.
0: And one of the women who went through this court and completed uh, the court-mandated sessions um, was a woman named Candy, and we actually have a clip from the film for her right now. Great. I had to run away. It uh, wasn't, it's called blowing up when you leave a pimp. So I blew up and um, I went home. It's hard to do it on your own
1: because when I did try to do it on my own, I got my room ran in, I got a gun put in my face multiple times. I've gotten robbed, I've
0: gotten stabbed. It's it's a lot of, that comes with a lot. Doing it by yourself. Like that's like the only benefit to having a pimp is the fact that you have protection. How did you approach talking to these women, many of whom were extremely vulnerable, some of whom were undocumented, and telling them, hey, is it okay if I film you and are you comfortable sharing your story?
1: Yeah, so the women in the film were the only women who wanted to do this. There were so many women who did not want to participate in the filming. And, you know, when people learned that we got access to film in the courtroom, they assumed that we got carte blanche to film everything that we wanted from there but every single scene after the courtroom was another conversation, another negotiation, another long discussion that took sometimes three weeks, sometimes four months. And so in those conversations with the women, I would learn from them their story, but also learn from them what they were comfortable with, what they wanted to share, how they felt comfortable filming, what were the creative barriers around getting them to collaborate and be involved in this project. And so based on those discussions, I created different framings and ways of telling their stories so that they would feel comfortable to share.
0: The trust between uh, your camera and the subject is is so evident because many of these women do share in depth. Um, and another thing that really comes across is the vibe in the courtroom is amazingly um, unmoralizing, right? Like there's a scene where um, one of the women who works for one of the service providers is talking to a woman who just has had her case cleared and, you know, she's talking to her about like, you know, what's next for you? Are you going to go back into the life? Are you still in the life? And the woman hedges... And the service provider says, you know that there's no judgment from me about whether you're doing what you're doing or not. I just want to make sure that you're not getting arrested and that the rest of your life isn't going to be ruined. I'm curious about the fragility that emerges about this court towards the end as that woman in question moves away and another woman, a DA, passes away. You get the sense that this court exists because there are some good eggs, Um, Was that a sense that you got or is the court bigger than this handful of women who you follow over the course of the documentary?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that this court, I mean, we observed other courts in action. And uh, one thing that we loved about the Queen's courtroom in particular was this. The larger-than-life personalities of each of the stakeholders who represented the courtroom, not just Judge Sarita, but like you said, Eliza Hook, the GEMS counselor, Kim Afronti, the prosecutor, even the court officers had larger-than-life personalities. But I also loved it because they all taught me as a filmmaker that we all have our own dilemmas coming into this space. And even though our dilemmas and our moral values might be different, we're all here together to do the best that we can and the roles that we're in to help these women, whatever that means.
0: What were some of your own assumptions that you found challenged?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, like most women and girls, we believe that, um, you know, sex work is something that you have no agency in and you have no choice. And that's completely incorrect assumption.
0: Mm hmm. Can I ask about your own background? Are you what? What is your ethnic background, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Yeah, no problem. I'm a Chinese-American. Mm-hmm. My parents are both from China, and they immigrated to this country in 1977, the year I was born. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Ohio.
0: I'm curious about what it was like for you filming um, with a lot of these women who had been busted by vice squads in massage parlor raids. Luckily, I speak Mandarin, mm-hmm. and so
1: we could communicate on a very personal level about life and life choices. And, um, you know, it was so great to hear from them about the things that they wanted. It's pretty simple things that most women want. And hearing that from them was just really amazing. And, you know, I just feel very privileged and lucky that I'm in a position that I can, um, you know, listen to these women be invited into their lives and to tell their stories.
0: That, that facet of the story struck me as well, and my mom is Chinese, and, and sort of seeing like a chain of sisterhood that a lot of the translators or service providers who were there advocating for these women appeared to me to be American-born Chinese um, who were using their language skills and their, their social skills to help um, these women who were being trafficked navigate this very confusing court system, which also could result in deportation, especially post-Trump. Um, The last chapter of the film seems to deal with the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump, which was a curveball for all of us, but I imagine for your film as well. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the additional challenges that people now have to deal with in a post-Trump world?
1: So for this courtroom in particular, one of the incentives that the counselors and service providers could offer these women was um, access to a T visa which is a trafficking visa or a U visa, which is a domestic violence visa. If they came forward and to share their story to help hire federal investigators launch a campaign into who is being trafficked and who their traffickers are. But under the current administration, supposedly these T visas are being scrutinized mm-hmm. and fewer and fewer are being offered. Um, so there's that aspect. Of just, it's harder for the service providers to get women to participate or to want to participate when they have so little to offer them. And then on another aspect, ICE is present in the courts. Um, Judge Suda says they're not present in the APA court as much, but just because they're not present in the courtroom doesn't mean that they're not waiting outside of the courthouse for the cases to be dismissed.
0: Yeah, there's an amazing scene where Judge Sarita assembles this little ecosystem um, of prosecutors, of service providers, and they're talking about the fact that someone was recently arrested and deported by ICE outside of the court. And Judge Sarita, you can see has no choice but to say, I can't make any guarantees for the safety of your undocumented clients. Of course, we want them to show up for their court appointments, but I can't tell you that that's safe anymore. Um, It really felt like it called the whole efficacy of the court into question. She
1: gets so upset watching that scene because it just reminds her of just how hard their work is. And no matter how hard, they try to do the best they can and that they all try to put these measures in place of trauma... Understanding that there's other forces at work that they cannot control. It's
0: hard. And she herself is such an extraordinary character. I mean... I know that it's like a bit taboo in documentary film to say that somebody's a born star. But like she's a born star. Every time she's on camera, you're just drawn to her. Um, and her background is amazing, too. Her, her parents are Japanese artists and they sort of subvert your uh, traditional Radical ideals. artists. Yeah. Normally you think about, you know, like Asian parents as being like, yes, I would love for my child to be a lawyer. And there's a scene where her mom's like, I didn't imagine that you'd turn out like this. And she's like, like what? And her mom's like, you know, a lawyer.
1: Yeah, no, it was so great. Her mother is hilarious, an amazing woman as well.
0: What is the current state of the attempt to decriminalize prostitution in New York City? So
1: there's currently a movement, a decrim movement that's happening in New York State right now, in New York City in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think that uh, it's it's testing a lot of people and making people think differently about things. And, um, you know, it's a moving organism that is figuring itself out.
0: And if people want to see the film Blown Up, which I highly recommend they do, where can they do that?
1: Um, They can see Blown Up this week in the theaters at Quad Cinema uh, in Manhattan. It's playing five times a day until Thursday. And then on Friday, it's going to be in L.A. at the Lemley Music Hall in Beverly Hills. And it'll be playing there for a whole week from April 12th to the 18th. And I'll be there opening weekend for curated talkbacks.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this important issue and this really beautiful film. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. In the Jim Crow South, one-drop laws were used to exclude and discriminate against any person who had one drop of African blood. No matter how white someone looked, if he had a single black ancestor, that meant he was black too, and therefore a second-class citizen. These racist laws inform the way we think about blackness to this day. Our next guest spent decades grappling with his own identity, finally channeling it into a new solo show called The Day I Became Black, now playing at the Soho Playhouse and just extended through May 26th. We're happy it brings Bill Posley to 112BK. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So your dad is black, your mom is white. Tell me a little bit about how you thought about your own race as you were growing up.
2: Yeah, so as a kid, I mean, I thought exactly that. I actually fully 110% identified as black and white and thought that I was both and I was just equally black, equally white, was unapologetic about it and just would bubble in black and white on all my standardized tests because I believed that's what I was. You asked me what I was and I would bubble in both or I would, you know, think that I could just run around saying I'm white and run around saying I'm black. And yeah, it was a pretty like just I was just an innocent kid who believed that I embodied both things and thought I was literally an equal representation of both sides of my family and I thought I could be white on Wednesday and black on Friday.
0: The innocence of youth.
2: Yes, the innocence (laughs) of youth man And so
0: was there a turning point? I mean the show is called the day I became black like was there a day when you were like wait
2: (laughs) (laughs) well for the for the experience of a a show you kind of want to hit this climactic moment, but if I'm being honest, it's, it's a series of days, right? It is a series of different situations where you put yourself out there and identify as something different than the way people see you, and then they remind you that you are the way you are perceived. You are what you look like. So even though I identify as 50% white and 50% black, I was 100% black to the world around me. And so because of that, I felt like when I tried to bubble in black and white on the test, the teacher told me I had to put just black. So that was like the first moment when I started dating and I was like, oh, you know, people are just gonna get to know Bill. What I didn't realize is they were dating somebody who was black and there was a level of expectation that came with that, that I didn't think or even knew existed at the time. And so over the course of my life, and as an actor, right, you go out to Hollywood and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to be able to be in all these roles and be whatever I want. And then you're reminded that when they cast you, they cast you as a black person. Even though I'm half white, why can't I be in any white roles? Why can't I play an Italian immigrant in a movie? Because after all, that's my mom's dad. That's my grandfather, you know? And so it's hard for you to kind of wrap your head around what you identify with and the way the world sees you and that battle that struggle is you know the basis of my show and is you know just something that somebody who's biracial is specifically in this country kind of has to deal with.
0: Mhm. I mean it strikes me as interesting too because I'm mixed race, my mom is Chinese and my dad is white and it seems like people who are mixed race of other races Mm -hmm. rather than black and white, have a little bit more fluency. Like I still probably do a lot of the same code switching that you do, but people don't see me and go, oh, you're Asian. You know, like there's a little bit more of like, oh, you're ethnically ambiguous. You're like, what are you? Right. Whereas I feel like with people who are uh, mixed race, black and white, it's like, oh, that's a black person. Mm
2: -hmm. I think with the racial history of our country, the idea of black and white is a different experience for a biracial person than maybe some of those other races just because of the the history of a black person in this country. And that's why it makes maybe that, that experience have a little different weight In what it means to be black in this country, which is why when you're biracial black and white, it may differ from, you know, Asian and white or or maybe even other mixes. And
0: not only in this country, like recently, Belgium issued this apology to mixed race citizens um, of its former colonies in Africa. Did you see this?
2: No, no, no. Where
0: like, you know, Belgium in Rwanda and in the Congo and I forget what other countries they... Uh, Uh, colonized. colonized. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They had a policy, an official policy of any children who were the product of a Belgian and African Union were kidnapped and put in special orphanages because the the existence of these children went against everything that they, everything that colonization was based on, you know, that white supremacy, right? And that they were viewed, that mixed race kids were viewed as like dangerous elements who might then Rise up and overthrow Belgium. Wow. Yeah.
2: The different countries have dealt with this in different ways. I know that, you know, specifically in South Africa, thanks to, you know, Trevor Noah's story, the idea that uh, being. Mixed race, you were born a crime and it was illegal. And then you're even subcategorized because there's black, there's white, and then there's colored. And that's what ends up being a, a subcategory there. And in this country, you are put into the category of black and almost told to deny half of who you are and not be able to relate with a side of yourself that you feel strongly connected to. And so it, it's interesting that. 280 countries around the world and different people all mixing together when two races mix on a human level We all have a reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And that's what's kind of crazy, you know
0: I'm curious about your experience with both sides of your family Like when you were with your white side of the family Were you perceived as like too black when you're with your black side were you perceived as too white?
2: You think oh my god, I'm biracial I'm going to have the best of both worlds. I'm going to be loved by everybody. And the truth is that you're always going to be too black for white people, not black enough for black people. And that was a lot of the times my experience, because when you're around your white cousins, you're the only one who looks like you. And um, when you're around your black Cousins, they think that you have some sort of white privilege that they don't have and so because of that and you're and the whole time You're just trying to fit in. I just I just want to hang out with you guys and run around and play and do all that stuff And so I found myself legitimately Overstepping to try and fit into both sides. Um, when I was a little kid with my white family, they all had spiked hair, so I would I would load tubs of gel into my hair. It was
0: a moment in time. T- to try and make
2: it, <laughs> to try and make it spike, yeah. and then we'd go run around, and the gel would just sweat and drip into my eyes and burn my that eyes. Stings, that yeah. stings. That stings. That stings or uh, you know i remember with my black cousins trying to show them a dance i choreographed to backstreet boys and like we don't listen to that <laughs> you know what i mean and right. it was and they were like right. and it was embarrassing and they like shut me down and made me feel self-conscious about it it can be very lonely mm-hmm. and i experienced prejudice from both black and white people and that's the other thing that is is kind of a unique experience where even though i look Like somebody who is perceived black within that community, I was called names like half breed and African and high yellow, and you know, things that really hurt my feelings growing up. Now, you have all this, you have this generation of biracial children who are now growing up in a time in America where we're learning. To, to find the language to talk about our experience, who we are now learning that it's okay to come into the racial identity that we were so trained to forget about or lose or suppress. And we just put, based on our appearances, all these prejudgments. And so once the world puts those on us, we, we hold on to them and we operate from that. You know, and it's a really difficult thing to unlearn and untrain. But now, I think we're having a a time in our society where biracial people are are vocalizing that.
0: Absolutely. And I often feel like because I I often am perceived as white um, when I'm in the company of white people, especially, I have to find some way to work in there. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, like Mo, my mom's from China. In case I say something that. Strikes them as like off color right. or like odd, you know, or maybe even racist. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing that I do think is a strength of people who are biracial is that we're very good at code switching. Right. Like we're able to and that can be applied to other things, not just moving between like black and white society. But we are able to be a bit of chameleons. Right. And see what situations uh, require of us.
2: Right. And 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 it's something that you kind of do as a survival mechanism early on in your life I, I think one of the things that you know through doing the show and doing all this stuff was the idea of how to how to how to stop that in a way that makes me feel inauthentic to myself and so that was one of the things that I really came across as a revelation from this which was the idea that at what point am I changing Bill right at what point am I no longer being, Bill, And so to now be able to step into a situation and say proudly that I'm biracial, yes I look black, but that doesn't mean I'm going to deny half of who I am, allows me to now operate from this beautiful place of like, I'm no longer caring what you think about me. I know who I am and, and how I feel, and that makes me feel like so great.
0: So the show is at the SoHo Playhouse until the end of May. Yes. And maybe we'll close out with, why don't you tell people why they should go see this show right. and what do you hope they take away from it without being prescriptive?
2: At the end of the day, it's a show about identity, which is which is something that biracial people don't have the monopoly on. Everybody. Every human being in this country is searching to find their own identity. It is a struggle that we all continue to have. This show is just my own story to find my own. And the reason I wanted to say that is you don't have to be black or white or biracial or anything to come and find a part of this show that you completely relate to. The, The specifics might be different, but the general notion of somebody who feels... Alone, or feels like they don't know how to identify or feels different than the way that the world perceives them, this show is for you. I promise you that it is. And also, it's it's just a lot of fun.
0: Bill Posley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's the show for today. And as always, if you liked what you heard, the best way to show your love is to review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargie, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Dilson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leith, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.